Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are once again diving into the world of copyright because a very interesting story happened while I slept. On your screen in front of you is a tweet from Indie Gamer Chick. I'm doing some light editing so you can't see her face at the top just to get rid of some colorful language. And she says, okay, this is just madness along the lines of Sony taking down every single video with Pixel. Or maybe Sony aggressively using the DMCA to take down references to The Last of Us Part Two. Who knows? There has to be some algorithm that some idiot paralegal is lazily using instead of checking this stuff. This is BS. And then Carlo Clowns, at Italian Clowns on Twitter, said, hey, I'm interested in hearing Hoglaw's thoughts on this. And as always, I very much appreciate those recommendations because I can't be everywhere. I don't see all of these stories. And I love to hear what you guys would like to have covered in this space. So thank you very much to Carlo. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about in this video. So if you click on that YouTube video, you'll find a video from Carl Yopst or Jopst, I apologize for the pronunciation, that says Guinness is falsely copyright claiming hundreds of speedrunning videos. And this entire video is about a gentleman by the name of Cosmic, who has a speedrunning record for, I believe it's a warpless run through the original Super Mario Brothers. And the Guinness Book of World Records approached him to have his video used on their YouTube channel. Now, if you aren't familiar with the Guinness Book of World Records and you're wondering why I have Guinness peers on the thumbnail to this video, it's worth noting here, and I always have loved this little piece of history, that the Guinness Book of World Records is actually a function of the Guinness Brewery, the Guinness Beers and Beer Company, uh, that they put this together because they were having a fight at some point about what was the fastest bird. And so they started a second company to just be able to record things like who's the fastest bird. And this has ultimately evolved into who can run Super Mario Bros. the fastest, which I've always found to be fascinating. But suffice it to say, they go through this, they get Cosmic's video content, they make their own video for their own channel, fastest warpless completion of Super Mario Brothers. They give him some instructions. This video uh, from Mr. Yopst is actually a lot of commentary about the Guinness video series kind of process to bring him in and how that's potentially difficult for somebody like Cosmic and, and them following the editing rules that they have put forth. But that doesn't really kind of comment on the copyright question. But Guinness gets their video, they get it up, and then something strange happens. Cosmic starts getting a lot of copyright claims. You can see here all these say hi Cosmic on the side. They all are from different videos of Cosmic running through Super Mario Brothers. And ultimately, they wind up striking the video that he submitted to them to actually demonstrate this particular speed run. Now, you've seen all this in this space before. This is not unusual for someone dealing with the internet to see YouTube's content ID system and any other system on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere being used in a fashion that does not comport in any way with the law. And so I looked at this and I said, well, that's really interesting. And then I scrolled down and I saw this comment from Guinness that I thought was interesting as well. Apologies to our record holders and anyone else affected. This appears to have been an error with automatic claims from our channel's content ID system. It should now be fixed and claims have been released. Sorry for causing concern. We know how distressing it can be to receive these notifications. And that was two hours ago, uh, as of the taping of this video, this video that is talking about the false copyright claims went up sometime today. So Guinness actually responded very, very quickly 
which is great. You like to see these big companies respond very quickly to these kinds of things, but the fact that it happened is still frightening, right? This person, Cosmic, submitted a video. They then put it through YouTube systems and wound up claiming retrospectively all of these videos that he had done. And that's a problem. That's a problem in the law. That's a problem with the kind of DMCA concepts that we're going to talk about, even though content ID isn't really DMCA compliant. It's something that the Office of Copyright calls a DMCA plus measure. It's essentially adjacent to the concept of a takedown notice under the DMCA, but it still serves a similar function. It's just one that is automated by the platform provider themselves that this kind of stuff shouldn't happen. And if we go and we look at how Content ID works, the description that is forward-facing for customers is as simple as this. Copyright owners can use a system called Content ID to easily identify and manage their content on YouTube. Videos uploaded to YouTube are scanned against a database of files that have been submitted to us by content owners. Copyright owners then get to decide what happens when content in a video on YouTube matches a work they own. When this happens, the video gets a Content ID claim. Now, if you're looking at that second paragraph and you say, Rick, I'm not quite sure. Do they have to say what happens to that video in advance or do they say it afterwards? The answer to that is, I didn't know. So I wanted to go check at something more explicit that YouTube actually shows, not to its customers, not to its users, the people that are watching videos or maybe creating them on a basis like you or I in virtual legality, but those folks that are actually submitting things to the Content ID system. They describe it as follows. Content ID is YouTube's automated, scalable system that enables copyright owners to identify YouTube videos that include content they own. YouTube only grants Content ID to copyright owners who meet specific criteria. To be approved, you must own exclusive rights to a substantial body of original material that is frequently uploaded by the YouTube user community. Essentially, YouTube's saying here that you have to be a somewhat high-risk copyright holder. As the copyright owner, you provide YouTube with a reference copy of your eligible content. So in this case, Cosmic's video. YouTube uses the reference to scan uploaded videos for matching content. Obviously, in the world of video games, especially something like Mario Brothers, a 2D video game with only certain kind of permutations that could ever be shown on a video, this is going to be a problem. When a match is found, YouTube applies your preferred policy to monetize, track the statistics of the video, or block it entirely. The major steps for using Content ID are set up that you are a content owner, deliver that content to YouTube, you add your copyrighted content to the YouTube content management system, by delivering reference files and metadata that describes the content. And for each item you deliver, YouTube creates an asset in our system. Depending on the type of content in your chosen delivery method, YouTube also creates a viewable YouTube video or reference for content ID matching, or both. Then, Content ID scans user uploads and identifies matches. Content ID continuously compares new uploads to the references for your assets. Matching videos are automatically claimed. That's what I was looking for. They're automatically claimed and your specified match policy is applied to the claimed videos. Understand how this works. There isn't a human being that intercedes on this unless something like this happens and Guinness, to their credit, interceded as soon as they saw that this all happened with respect to Cosmic. They don't want this to have happened. And one thing that could have happened as part of this is if we look in the gray box, YouTube says as follows. Content ID also performs a legacy scan to identify matching videos uploaded before the reference. A full legacy scan can take up to six months to complete. Recent uploads and popular videos 
are scanned first. They go back in time. You have to submit this video if you are the Guinness Book of World Records and you say, this is ours. This version of it is ours, certainly. We edited it. It's the version that we put on our channel. And then YouTube says, thank you for telling us this is yours. We will go and we will look for parts of other videos that match this. But when Guinness is making a video that includes in large part sections of another person's video, this is the natural end result. And then you go and you look back in time and you get a screen like this. And let's give Guinness the benefit of the doubt. They didn't know this was going to happen, which seems a little bit odd because they're in the business of making these videos and putting them up on their channel. But it's worth noting that this is completely outside the bounds of the law, right? YouTube can do whatever it wants with its assets. YouTube can do whatever it wants with its content ID claims. But these are very similar in nature to DMCA claims. That's why the law or the Office of Copyright or people that engage with this kind of content call them DMCA plus mechanisms. They perform a function similar to the DMCA. And as we talked about yesterday, the DMCA right now is in a very precarious position. More specifically, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Twitch and whomever are in a very precarious position because the Office of the Copyright has come out with a 250-page report that essentially says that what they call OSPs, the providers, the platforms, the YouTubes of the world, are not doing enough to protect copyright that rights holders need to get more powers and more authority. And so when you have something like this happen, when you have a rights holder like Guinness trying to use a YouTube system and failing utterly and maybe violating the law in doing so, certainly by correcting as quickly as they did, I don't think that anything is likely to develop against Guinness on this score, but they're highlighting the problems with automated systems. And that can go one of two ways. Yeah, that could be against YouTube because YouTube system doesn't get a human actor involved when they probably should, but it could also be a problem for rights holders, right? If you use this automated system and you are a rights holder, you are doing something like a DMCA takedown. You are taking money out of the hands of someone else. And if you aren't doing it in a fashion that can tie to an actual copyright infringement, shouldn't you be looked at carefully by the law? And in fact, in this report, Section 512 of Title 17, a report of the Register of Copyrights, which we looked at in part for the recommendations that the United States Copyright Office put together, there is going to be a lot of talk about automated systems. And I suspect that in this space, in virtual legality, we are going to dive into various aspects of this report over the course of the next several months, because there are different portions of 250 pages that could apply to various news items of the day. In this particular case, what I want to talk about is how the DMCA notice process works because the DMCA plus notices, putting a video up and having it automatically blocked or automatically have the money taken from it and put in your pocket is something like a DMCA takedown notice. And in the elements of notification for a DMCA takedown notice, you have to be able to claim infringement. You have to be able to identify a copyrighted work claimed to have been infringed, and you have to be able to identify what material is infringing. So if you do a manual content ID claim, as we talked about in the Sony story, YouTube actually says, hey, you have to go and label what portions of the video you think are infringing. But for an automated claim, that doesn't happen. YouTube's computers, their bots, just go and look and say, okay, 
this matches, and now they said they want this blocked, or they want money from it, or they want to track the statistics, and we're going to do that for them. But there's nothing to identify here, right? In this particular question, like so many of the Sony questions that we looked at over the past couple of weeks, they don't have a copyright in any of this stuff. They sure as heck don't have a copyright in Super Mario Brothers. If someone wanted to bring a claim on that, that would be Nintendo. They don't have a claim on Super Mario Brothers. What they do have a claim on is the specific video that they made that presumably Cosmic gave them the license rights to because it would have been his first. And then they can go forward with that. As we've talked about in the DMCA, you are supposed to get in trouble if you lie about these things. Any person who knowingly materially misrepresents under this section that material or activity is infringing shall be liable for any damages. The DMCA is set up to impose that liability. If you lie, you are in trouble. Now, we've talked about the failures of this section. One of those is, if I use an automated system, am I knowingly doing anything? If YouTube says, don't worry, we've got you on this, and I put my video up in their database, and then YouTube does stupid stuff, is YouTube in trouble or am I? And then you start to get into questions that are not as obvious as, do I own this copyright material, but are the questions that we focus on a lot in this space, which is fair use. And then you get into a section that we talked about yesterday, but that we didn't talk about in great detail on this particular question, which is automation, because it didn't come up on the recommendations that the Copyright Office actually made. But you will be able to see the fight here goes to the case of universal versus lens that we have talked about in the past. In lens, the Ninth Circuit held that a copyright holder must consider the existence of fair use before sending a takedown notification under Section 512, the DMCA, because fair use is authorized by the law. If the copyright holder does not consider fair use before sending a takedown notification, then the copyright holder, according to the Ninth Circuit, may be liable for damages under Section 512F. The court further explained, however, that the copyright holder would not be liable if they form a subjective, good-faith belief that the use does not constitute a fair use, even if the court would later disagree with the fair use determination. Now, as you've probably heard in this space, I have my own issues with that because it allows these big rights holders to essentially put a memo in the file and, yes, I or any competent lawyer can come up with a reason why a use is not fair use in almost every circumstance. And so it's not a barrier to making false claims. It's not a barrier to abusing the DMCA. But the question becomes on questions like this, fair use, ownership, what happens to automation when you don't have a human intervener at all? Several participants at the DC Roundtable, so the Copyright Office holds a bunch of these conferences and meetup groups where they get comments and they get questions about what they're planning to do, what they're planning to recommend in a report like this one. Several participants at that roundtable addressed the Ninth Circuit's interpretation of good faith, questioning the practical application of the court's determination that a copyright owner must evaluate whether a use is permitted by the fair use doctrine and affirmatively decide that it is not before sending a takedown notice. And then they got this footnote from these various rights holders. From my standpoint as a musician or a creator, it's much easier to figure out whether something's infringing than whether something is in fact fair use. Lens is still a major problem for us. It's kind of hanging out there as a potential time bomb for small publishers and certainly for songwriters who may have just massive amounts of infringing examples of their work out on the internet. 
Now that interpretation is absolutely flatly ridiculous. These rights holders are saying we shouldn't have to consider fair use before claiming something is infringing. But I've got news for you, and you already know it if you follow this video series. Things that are fair use are not infringing. 17 U.S.C. 107, notwithstanding the provisions of the stuff that we say are exclusive rights, the fair use of a copyrighted work is not an infringement of copyright. It is utterly impossible for you to claim infringement if something is fair use. And if you don't consider fair use, then yeah, maybe the knowing materiality standard should apply to you because you're being willfully blind. But that's what the Copyright Office is dealing with. And that is what they're choosing to highlight in a report like this. Continuing from there to talk specifically about what we are looking at today, a number of rights holders were uncertain about the implication of Lens for their ability to use automated processes to identify infringing material and send takedown notices. In this footnote, the ability to use an automated process of notification recently has been clouded by the judicially imposed. So that's a slam. This is the equivalent of a subtweet in a legal report. They're saying that wasn't part of the statute. Some judge somewhere in California imposed this on us, which again, flatly ridiculous. Clouded by the judicially imposed requirement that as part of the notification requirements under Section 512, C3, a copyright owner must consider the applicability of fair use before stating that it has a good faith belief that use of the material in the manner complained of is not authorized by the copyright owner, its agent, or the law. One OSP, so a YouTube equivalent, not necessarily YouTube, asserts unequivocally that under lens automated notices should not be considered valid notices, in part because algorithms that generate automated notices are not able to assess whether a particular use is infringing or might be lawful, since a conclusion on fair use is uh, on fair use is one that is impossible for an algorithm to draw. Now that's a very interesting claim from the YouTubes of the world because one reason that they would say that is because if they don't get a valid notice, then they don't have to take anything down and they don't jeopardize their safe harbor. So they might want to say, if you're using our automated processes, if you're using the DMCA plus systems like Content ID that we have in place, it doesn't count as a DMCA notice, so we don't get in trouble if we don't take it down. On the other hand, it's a very weird position for somebody like YouTube or Facebook or whoever to take because if it's not a compliant notice and you do take it down or you do take money out of somebody else's hands, under what rubric are you doing so? And then are you taking on liability that maybe you didn't have, even with your very broadly written terms of service, for stealing money from people or from blocking their videos for no reason because you are contributing to someone else interfering with the business of another? And you're saying here that the notice wasn't valid to do so. So yes, YouTube has broad rights, as does everyone else on the internet, under their terms of service to move their videos around, to take down what they don't want to have up there, maybe to move money around. It gets a little dicey when you talk about that. But you can see that the rights holders and the YouTubes and everyone else doesn't even agree as to whether these things function under the law. And no, we're not talking specifically about DMCA, but we are talking about the same kind of concept. So the DMCA and things like Section F that impose liability are going to inform decisions on this, maybe in the near future. Guinness was right to make sure they corrected everything very quickly because that is the kind of thing that they could ultimately be liable for. Now, several rights holders 
rejoin such an assertion. They disagree, stating that automated programs assisted by some type of human review, either in design or execution, because humans wrote the code, it's good enough. They do provide the necessary level of review to meet Section 512's notice requirements. Assisted by some type of human review, either in design or execution. You don't need a human being to look at these things from our side. Somebody at YouTube wrote it. That's a human being. That counts. Let's take a look at this footnote. You talk to lawyers and the response is going to be, gee, how can a computer program possibly do what we can do? which is decide whether something is fair use or can be used in a context. And I think it absolutely can. It's just software programs are created by humans. They can build that into the program to a large extent. It seems as if language regarding automation has been taken out of the second version of the opinion lens. That's a concern for us. It might very well mean that they're going to interpret it so that we cannot use automation, which again increases our cost burden and ability to protect our works. We take great care in putting together an operation that is scalable, but yet also accurate. We use a variety of technologies and automation systems combined with human review. In all cases, the technology is designed by humans, controlled by humans, aimed by humans. And so therefore, there's really not a dichotomy of automation versus humans. You have to use them together. This is in respect of NBC Universal and their claims. But as we just saw, unless you're doing manual claims or otherwise using YouTube in a fashion that isn't the way it is set up to be as a kind of default, you don't have a human intervening once the claim is made. I'm not sure Lens has changed the landscape for members of DMLA. They may use image recognition technology to find matches, but there's always been a level of human involvement to review. Now, maybe that's the case. Maybe the bigger rights holders do have a human being looking at these kinds of things. Maybe they regularly look at the emails that they receive from the YouTubes of the world. But certainly in a case like this one, where you have all of these content claims happen, they are clearly automated, right? Nobody was going through on a minute by minute basis and doing this. This is YouTube's robots doing this. And you have maybe a legacy scan involved, but you also have an automatic claim and then a specified match policy applied, you have significant problems by saying that this is something that should be protected under the DMCA. And so, yeah, the rights holders say, it's all fine. Human beings wrote the code. The OSP say, I don't see how an automated system can actually comply with the requirement that you check for fair use. And ultimately, the U.S. Copyright Office throws up its hands. The Ninth Circuit and Lens, unfortunately, did not speak directly to automated aspects of monitoring for infringements and sending notices. We don't know, which is why they don't really wind up giving a full kind of recommendation at the end of this section. They articulate these issues, but they don't talk about what they mean in practice. And in the same space, if you didn't watch the video yesterday, this same report talks about how they don't think fraudulent claims are necessarily a big deal. The rights holders certainly don't. The OSPs do, the smaller creators do, and they get various footnotes and assertions in this report as well. But the entire premise of this report is that the rights holders, the major copyright holders, are not protected enough by the DMCA, are not protected enough by what YouTube or Facebook or whomever is doing and putting out there. And so there needs to be changes to make it stronger for them. While in the same breath saying, you know, this court case out there seems to suggest that maybe automated systems don't work. And then the YouTubes of the world saying, yeah, they don't work. And what does that even mean to them? So I called this in the thumbnail, the perils of automated copyright claims. The fact is 
they do imperil the functioning of the DMCA today, the DMCA plus kind of concept. And it is this kind of thing that is going to really come down hard on either the rights holders, unlikely, or YouTube, much more likely, and everybody's going to have to deal with it. So these kinds of stories, they might happen often enough, even though the Copyright Office doesn't acknowledge them. But if they continue to happen, you really are going to see some significant changes in the way YouTube operates its DMCA Plus systems and potentially how the DMCA itself is written. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thought it was a fascinating story. I hadn't seen something like that on the speed runs and the Guinness Book of World Records uh, in the last little while. So I thought I would bring it to your attention and I thought I would talk a little bit about how it interacts with the recent Office of Copyright report. If you like that, like, subscribe, share it around, tell people that we are out here. Obviously, we did a deep dive into the recommendations that the Office of Copyright made yesterday. We've also talked at length about Sony abusing the DMCA process or perhaps just aggressively using it in a fashion that seems like abuse. And we did that in a 10-part series that talks about all of what Sony has done with Twitter, with YouTube, and what they've done in the past with respect to their leaked emails. Highly recommend checking it out. I think it's a fascinating series and I'm, I'm very proud of it. Otherwise, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.